We're studying Matthew, and we're trying to do it from a first century understanding. And last week, we looked at the cost of discipleship with the Rabbi Yeshua. And we noted that there was a high cost of discipleship, and that high cost remains today. You see, if we're true disciples of Yeshua, it's going to cost us in this life. It's going to cost us things we hold dear. What brought about this teaching was an inquiry of a young man and a Torah scholar, both asking Yeshua to be his disciple. The Torah scholar, with an understanding of discipleship, says to Yeshua, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And that statement should tell us much about discipleship. Did either of these men become true disciples of Yeshua? Well, we don't know for sure. But we know that they weren't any of the twelve. And that was the reason for Yeshua's statements to them. So right away you have to ask yourself, how is it that a Torah scholar who understands discipleship does not make it to be one of the twelve? I hope to try and answer that for you today. As the lesson in discipleship continues this week in chapter 9 and verse 9 with the call of Matthew. And Matthew's kind of an odd man out when you look at the disciples because he was a tax collector. So let's start by reading the verse in Matthew 9, 9. It says, And Yeshua went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And so what we have here is the calling of Matthew, who's a Levite probably, who's a tax collector. Matthew being by the Galilee is more than likely collecting some kind of tax on the fish that are caught by the fishermen. He'd be by the Galilee checking those catches before they were dispersed to make sure that the fishermen paid their full tax. In Mark and Luke, he's not called Matthew, but Levi, which is probably uh, maybe the tribe he is from. That's why I kind of say he was probably a Levite. And as we will see in the following verse, tax collectors are not popular. Not that tax collectors are ever popular, but these men often collected more than was required to fill their own pockets. And so tax collectors were notorious for dishonesty, and that's what makes this call of Matthew so interesting. We'll look more at that another week because we're going to look at something else today. But so think of this. If you're a teacher or a rabbi, you have to wonder how, uh, at how quickly Yeshua was able to gather 12 disciples. A disciple was one that the rabbi trained to carry on the work that he had done, the lessons that he had learned, and the lessons that he taught. And the lifestyle that he had, had been taught by his rabbi. And lived by. As a rabbi got closer to the time that he'll no longer teach, the search would become more urgent. And here, we know that Rabbi Yeshua knows that he only has three years. And so he quickly gathers the twelve disciples. And all of them but one, amazingly, he was successful in training. All but one. That's an amazing feat. Because as I think back, I don't think I've seen that done in all the 18 years that I've been looking for this to happen. I know few people that have made that many true disciples. Think about it. An amazing task. Not only that, but you also have to wonder about his choices. I mean, here we have a Torah scholar 
who doesn't make it. And then we look at the ones who did, the 12 who did, they certainly don't appear to be the brightest. Certainly not the most well studied in Torah. But they've actually spent their lives in pursuit of other things. So their experience as teachers is minimal. Their study of Torah is minimal. And that's who he's chose. That's who he chooses though. And his success rate, as I said, is amazing. So maybe there's something for us to learn here. Maybe there's something to be learned. And so I want to start today with a more thorough teaching on on rabbis and disciples of the first century. And maybe then in the next few weeks lead into what all this means for us as a community. We really have no relationship like this in our world today. It's foreign to us. And yet, it's what Yeshua chose to train 12 men to go out and affect the world like no other 12 men in history. Which should tell us one thing. If this is done correctly, it works. If we're going to liken the rabbi-disciple relationship to anything, it would be more like it would be more likely the best fit would be an apprenticeship to one of the trades. If you were an apprentice, for an example, you were an apprentice to a plumber, you'd want to learn everything the plumber did. How he held his torch as he soldered those pieces of pipe together. How he laid out the many pieces before he even started, how he fitted everything together before he even started the solder. What kind of solder he used? What kind of flux? What kind of protective gear he wore? Where to grab a quick lunch? Even down to what kind of shirt he wore so that he wouldn't offend the housewife with his plumber's butt. (laughs) Well, if you were a disciple to a rabbi in the first century, that was all the same. A rabbi of the first century would gather students to himself, just as we see Yeshua doing here. And this was such an intense relationship that as we see here in Matthew, it required that you leave your job, often your family for extended periods of time. It was really something for young men. As any lifelong or long period of learning or a long period of uh, learning an occupation would be. Something for young men. One day this rabbi, he would want to choose, this rabbi would be looking for the best. He'd be looking for the brightest young men to train because one day he was going to smicha. He was going to lay hands on this young man and make him a rabbi. And we'll speak more of that in a while. And so the rabbi was looking for young men that he could train to be copies of himself. The rabbi hopefully would teach, be able to teach this young man to be like him in every way. Not just spiritually, but also in his walk through life. Both spiritually and in the natural as well. How he prayed, how he prepared for prayer, how he studied. So the disciple had to follow the master in everything. The words he prayed, how he said the blessings, how he ate, how he treated people, how he made judgments, how he studied Torah. Everything about the rabbi was to be learned. 
And we get a clue just to how close this relationship was in the words of Yeshua in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 8. And it says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone father, for you have but one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. And the greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I don't want to get into the full meaning of what's going on here. We'll do that later when we get to chapter 23 of Matthew. But what I want to focus on what he says. He says, you're not to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you father nor teacher. You see, in essence, what Yeshua is saying, the same thing with all of these statements. A rabbi, a teacher was so close to his disciples that they actually, he actually thought of them as sons. And often the rabbi would be referred, be referred to as father by his disciple. And we can see this in the very first tractate of the Mishnah. In, it's called Perkeavot, the sayings of the fathers. The fathers being the earliest sages and teachers. And so the commitment here is intense. And this is what Yeshua is calling these men to, to carry his teachings, his life lessons to the generations that follow. And as you can imagine, for a rabbi, this was important stuff. Because what did it mean? It meant, was his life's work going to continue or was it going to just pass, come to an end with him? And so the rabbi... To the rabbi, these disciples were like sons. They were going to carry his name on. There's a tradition in the Mishnah, I believe, or the Talmud, I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. I'm just going to quote it from memory because it's one of my favorites. And you'll understand why when I get done. It says, if your father and your rabbi were both in jail and you only had enough money to get one of them out, you should get your rabbi out. The reason is, your father brought you into this world, but your rabbi is bringing you into the world to come. Now that's just a midrash, but it does convey in a humorous way the importance of this relationship. For Yeshua, it was even a bit more extreme than this because he's asking his disciples to carry the good news of God not just to the next generation of Jewish people or the next generation of disciples, but he's asking him to carry it out to the world. And we know that he was extremely successful as we're standing here today because of the hard work of these men. And of course, a later addition to them, Rav Shaul. And so the point being, Yeshua knew how to pick his disciples. And any rabbi or teacher of the word who desires to see the work that he's done carried on would do well to study what can be known about Yeshua picking these men. Anyone who desires to be a disciple would do well to look at this as well. To learn what made these disciples so successful. If you wanted to be a true disciple... Now, they were successful in taking Yeshua's teachings out, but they were also successful in making more disciples. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word disciple. 
one who lived and breathed the words that they had learned from their rabbi. Now, we don't get too much of the history of the Twelve, but we get a little bit more history of Rav Shaul, and I want to read about one of his disciples. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Shaul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua by the command of God, our Savior and of Messiah Yeshua, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Shaul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. And now we know exactly what that means. Timothy was Shaul's disciple. Let's look at one more thing about Timothy and and Shaul. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1, it says, And he came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, Paul wanted to take him on a long journey, so he circumcised him because the Jews who lived in that area, for they knew that his father was a Greek. And so Shaul circumcises Timothy, something that a father would do, that a father should do. It was a father's responsibility. And so we can see just how close this relationship between Timothy and Shaul was. It was one of a rabbi-disciple in the truest sense. And so here's the deal. We see that the original disciples went out and made more disciples. And they were successful in other ways as well of being like their master because they gave their lives for the good news that Yeshua brought. And so they were disciples in the truest sense. They paid the high cost of discipleship that Yeshua spoke of in the previous chapter. Were they and, and, and afterwards their disciples successful in carrying on the teachings of the Master? Well, yes, in that we can follow what are called the Nazarenes up until the 4th century. They were living, worshiping, and teaching much the same things that they had been taught. Were they 100% successful? Eh, not so much. Because if we look at Rome and other places to the West, we find that the Christianity that was practiced there did not resemble the teachings of Yeshua or the apostles. And so what happened as generations passed, men with little knowledge of the teachings and the ways of Yeshua inserted their own ideas and made followers of themselves and not the Messiah. And so in this part of the world, essentially discipleship of of Yeshua came to an end. So true is this, that if we look at the church today, it not even faintly resembles the walk of Yeshua and His disciples. And granted, there's a restoration taking place and it's come through a lot of hard work and and a lot of suffering on the part of a few men like my rabbi of blessed memory, Roger Luddington, and others. And so... Back to this relationship and its parameters. The rabbi is in essence trying to make a copy of himself. And the disciple, he's trying to be a a copy of his rabbi. So does that mean that the disciple wasn't able to think for himself? Or to question his rabbi in any matters? Well, no, because that type of discussion was encouraged. The fact is that questions were often answered by the rabbi with a question to get the disciple to think, to bring forth his thoughts, his ideas. And if they were correct, the student was praised. 
And if not, then the rabbi would correct him. But debate was very much a part of discipleship. Yeshua often asks his disciples questions or answers questions with questions. It was part of this learning process. I can say that they weren't allowed to to voice contrary opinions on important matters. And indeed, if they were true disciples, why would they want to? They were not there to express their ideas. They were there to imitate, to become like their rabbi. You see, if a disciple came in and he wanted to teach his rabbi, then he wasn't a disciple, was he? And more than likely, if that happened, the rabbi would become quite discouraged with that person and cease to, he would cease to be a student. His discipleship would come to an end. Remember, he's trying to make a copy of himself. This whole relationship would culminate successfully with the rabbi laying hands on his disciple and making him a rabbi and sending him out to make his own disciple. We can see this in Yeshua's ministry. If we go to John chapter 20 and verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Yeshua came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord and Yeshua said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Well, it doesn't mention that Yeshua laid hands on his disciple. The illusion here is inescapable. Yeshua, who came and spoke the very words of God and taught men the words of his father, his teacher, his rabbi, so to speak, is now sending these men out that he's trained as his father sent him. This is what we see Yeshua doing with the twelve with a slight modification. And that is, he also gives them the Spirit of God to indwell them. You see, when a rabbi laid hands on his disciple, what he was saying was that he was fully trained and that he had every confidence in his ability to teach and carry on his teachings. Teach in his name. The rabbi, by laying hands on the student, is saying that he will stand by his words because his words are my words. And that's what Yeshua is doing here with the twelve. And he's so confident in the work that he's done with these twelve that he says this in John chapter 20, in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. So confident is Yeshua that he even says, you're so well trained that if you forgive, it will be forgiven. And if not, not. That's one confident rabbi in his disciples. When the rabbi laid hands on the disciple, the disciple would and could begin to teach in the rabbi's name. Again, the rabbi was so confident in the student that he would allow him to teach in his name because he knew that he could stand by by his disciples' words. We can see this in the disciples of Yeshua in Luke chapter 21 and verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and to prisons and you will be brought before governors and kings on account of my name. And this will result in your being witnesses to them. He tells his disciples that as they teach in his name, they're going to be persecuted as he was persecuted. 
We can see it in the book of Acts chapter 4 as well. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Yeshua. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These true disciples of Yeshua were teaching what they heard from Him, what they'd seen from the way He lived and the way He died the words he spoke, the love he displayed, teaching in the name of their rabbi, Yeshua. You see, the disciples in the first century had a deep respect for their rabbi. They were grateful that they were chosen. As you can imagine, there weren't many rabbis, but there were many people seeking to be disciples. And so to be chosen was something special, something to be appreciated. Because of that, disciples would have the same confidence in their rabbi. Hey, they might not understand the things that he did or the way he did them or the things that he asked them to do, but they did those things because of confidence in him. They figured, look, he's a learned man. He's respected. He's a, and for, uh, there must be a good reason that he's asking me to do this. I may not understand the reason right now, but I will as time goes by because he'll teach me. And I imagine the disciples of Yeshua and all didn't understand everything that was happening. And yet, they followed because they trusted their teacher. Listen to what Luke chapter 9 and verse 43 says. While everyone was marveling at what Yeshua did, He said to His disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they didn't grasp it. They were afraid to ask him about it, but they still followed. This is the life of a rabbi and a disciple, a disciple of Yeshua. As we spoke of last week, he was going to suffer for his discipleship. He was going to endure the hardships that his rabbi endured. He was going to suffer the death that he suffered to teach the good news. Now, we spoke of how successful Yeshua was. But you have to ask yourself, how was it that he was so successful in his choices of disciples? That he could have a success rate of 11 out of 12. Think about it. That's quite a success rate. And why would he say to Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, probably a dishonest man, and to a Peter, a fisherman, Come follow me. But to the Torah scholar, he discourages him with the words, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Well, let me give you an example from my own life. You've all heard, right before I came back to the Lord, right after I came back to the Lord, I prayed and I asked the Lord, lead me to where I'm going to learn the truth. And the Lord answered within days. He sent an acquaintance over to tell me about a Messianic congregation in Burien, Burien, Washington. And so I went over and we visited and I stayed. Well, I don't always mention this, but I had never really gone to church in my life. I mean, probably the last time I was in a church was eight years old. Now I was in my late 30s. So when it came to Bible teaching, I was a blank slate. I had nothing to unlearn about the Bible. I only had things to learn. 
So when I came to Rabbi Ludington, I was hungry, I was ready to be taught, and I was appreciative of everything I was learning. As I thought back this week, I realized, you know, something I hadn't realized before. I was a pretty good disciple. I didn't make many moves spiritually without first talking to the rabbi. I remember going to him at the first, going with him to my very first messianic conference. It was in Colorado. And there was others in the congregation who went along as well. And, you know, I saw this person there, Dr. Michael Brown. And he had this, this teaching that he did on prayer. I thought, man, I, I should, I, I'd like to buy that. And so I went to my rabbi and I said, tell me, you've heard of this Dr. Michael Brown? Is he solid? And he said, yeah, he's solid. So I bought the teaching. If he'd have said no, I probably wouldn't have bought it. I was probably his biggest pain in the neck because I knew Yeshua had led me there and so I was going to listen and learn everything that I could listen and learn. And I was appreciative. There wasn't a Sabbath afternoon that after I got home or early Sabbath evening that I didn't call the rabbi and tell him how much I enjoyed and how much I had learned from his message because I had learned from Rav Shaul to respect my teachers, because of their task was hard. I didn't realize how hard then. I do now. <laughs> However, now as I think back, I realize maybe Sabbath afternoon or early Sabbath evening was not the best time to call. And I hope that he forgives me for all the rest I probably deprived him of. But I was so grateful for what he was doing that I did what I did. I was hungry. I went to every Arab Shabbat service, every Sabbath service, every study. I wanted to help in whatever area I could, could help in because I was so grateful for what Yeshua had done in redeeming me and answering my prayer to lead me to this place to learn. But listen, because here's the point I wanted to make with all of this. That's why Rabbi Yeshua is choosing who he's choosing. They're blank slates. No rabbinic training to undo. Can you imagine what a task it would have been to reteach that Torah scholar with all of his opinions? He'd be questioning Yeshua, questioning Yeshua at every turn, making his life harder. Listen to this teaching from the sayings of the fathers. He who learns when a child, what is he like? Ink being put down on a clean piece of paper. And he who learns as an old man, what is he like? Ink put down on a paper full of erasures. You see, Yeshua is choosing his disciples because they're like children in that they're blank. Nothing to erase. At least little to erase. If we move down a few verses, we might see this in the words of Yeshua. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 17. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. New wine, the new wine of the good news that Yeshua is bringing must be poured into new wineskins like children, blank paper. The old wineskins are rigid and they'll burst because, but the new are flexible, very much like our paper analogy. 
Is it impossible to teach the older to be a disciple? Nobody better have a good eraser. Is it impossible to reuse an old wineskin? No, but it, it must be reconditioned. It must be made pliable again. One of the reasons Yeshua was successful was that he chose those who would hang on his words. They were blank slates like children ready to learn. They were not filled with teachings that were contrary to what he taught. He was able to mold these men without having to unmold them first. And when he was finished, he had 11 men who were on the same page, who had learned his teachings. And they called his teachings the way. They had learned them so well that they could pass them on from memory with amazing accuracy. We have Gospels that were written tens of years after Yeshua passed. And they're almost word for word the same. We have Gospels written by those who weren't even original disciples and the teachings were passed to them with amazing accuracy and they remembered them with amazing accuracy. You know, I I laugh at people who read through the Gospels looking for any differences in the stories. But when you think about it, they're so close to the same that it's amazing. When you think of how long had gone by before they were written down, how much time had passed. Tell two people, test me in this, tell two people the same teaching and then go back 20 years and see if it's even close. These men listened to Yeshua. They hung on his words. Timothy listened to Rav Shaul. Not other teachers. And so carried on the work of his rabbi, Rav Shaul, who carried on the work of his rabbi, Yeshua. When we went through the life of the early disciples, we saw the same thing. The disciples of the second and third centuries hung on the words of the disciples. They practiced those things the disciples and Yeshua practiced. And when men from the Western church in Rome tried to change them, they rebuked them in the name of the Messiah and of the Twelve. Folks, Yeshua is looking for a few good disciples still. I hope that one day that he found that in me and that one day I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful disciple. And I hope that he will find the same in you. And I want to continue with this next week. We'll carry this to its ultimate conclusion in this life. And that is what the disciples went and did. They went out and made community. Because the life in the teachings of Yeshua culminated in the disciples going forth and making community. Amen?